You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Amen. Don't sit down just yet. Grab your Bible just as we have been doing from the start of this year. Let's hold it up and let's pray to this God who doesn't fail. Father, we are so thankful for your word because it reminds us that over and over and over again, you have proven your faithfulness, you've proven your power, and you've proven that you do not fail. And we have no reason to believe that you ever will. And so, Lord, we are thankful as we open up this story, as we continue reading the great narrative of how you have rescued your people. Lord, we're thankful that we are a part of that plan. And today we celebrate our freedom in Christ because of what you accomplished so many generations ago. Lord, open up our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we would be led into a greater understanding of who you are, and that our lives would be dedicated to this God, this God who has rescued us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can grab a seat, and as you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1 as we continue in our story. But before we do that, I wanted to celebrate every time we see life change, we want to celebrate that. And last weekend, Bethany Obermeyer placed her membership here at Memphis Christian, and we can celebrate that this morning just as we see people continue to respond to the the gospel, to respond to God's invitation to salvation, but to respond to his invitation to be a part of the church, the local body, the family that is so encouraging to so many. And so we always look forward to celebrating that every time we see hearts change towards that. Last week, we finished up the first kind of mini-series in this year-long series where we are covering the Bible, the great story of God's redemption from cover to cover, beginning to end. And and last week, we finished up Genesis by looking at the story of Joseph, the story of how God used this man and and his ability to interpret dreams that was given by God to rescue not just the Egyptian nation and not just the nations around Egypt, but more importantly, to rescue Israel, to rescue Jacob's family, a family that at that time only numbered about 70 people that was to be grown into this great nation that God had promised Abraham. The nation through which all the peoples on earth would be blessed. That's you and me. And God used Joseph to do that. And so we finished up with that rescue. And at the end of Genesis, this family of 70 has moved into Egypt where they've begun to settle. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. They're in Egypt, but by the time Exodus starts, about 400 years or nearly 400 years have passed. And in that time, that family of 70 has grown into the nation that God promised it would grow into. This family of 70 that has grown into what we understand to be just 600,000 just men and able-bodied people, not including women and children and those who were not able-bodied, a nation of more than a million had grown up inside of another nation. And that's where the problem for the Israelites begins. As the nation of Egypt looks around and and all they see are, are Hebrew people. 
Whereas they, they had the favor of the king and the people those 400 or so years ago, now the tides have begun to turn. And Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 summarizes for us kind of how things are going to go. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. So all of those things that we talked about in the last two weekends, they mean nothing to this new king who comes to power in Egypt. And so 400 years ha have been very hard on the memories of the kings that have come and on the people. And this new Pharaoh rises to power and he hasn't paid very close attention to history books that talk about how Joseph and his family were so integral in saving this great nation. And either he's forgotten completely or he knows about it and he doesn't care. Whatever it is, this one sentence gives us an indication of what's about to happen. And he says to his people, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, they'll fight against us, and they'll leave the country. You see, he was afraid that this nation that had grown up inside of his nation would joined forces with their enemies and would fight against them and they'd become so numerous that it was possible they might even defeat them. And so he says, let's deal shrewdly with them. Dealing shrewdly means enslaving them and forcing them into harsh labor, putting slave drivers over them and, and causing them to work, to work hard. But in spite of all this, verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread. Isn't that true for God's people from the very beginning? That the more they are oppressed, the more they are hard-pressed, the, the more they multiply, the more they bear fruit, the more they do the things that, that God has called them to do. It's amazing that no matter how hard others try to thwart it, God's plan continues to move forward in spite of every single obstacle. In spite of everything, we see God's plan move forward. And that's what Exodus is about. In fact, this slavery and what's about to come as a result, they were all part of God's plan from the very beginning. I don't know if you caught it back at the beginning when we first opened up Genesis. When you get to Genesis chapter 15, which was that we were talking about God making his covenant with Abraham. It was where God put Abraham into a deep sleep and he cut the bull in half and, and the fire pot went between it. God made a promise to Abraham through those events. And he says this beginning in verse 13. He says, know for certain. Now, when you see in your Bible, God say, know for certain, then what that means is that you can know for certain. Right? It means that what God has said is going to happen. And he says, know for certain that for 400 years, he even gives them the amount of time, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This was not a surprise. God said it to Abraham before Isaac was even born. Before the seed of the promise had even come, God says, you are going to be enslaved and mistreated and the very next word is so important, it's but. You're going to be enslaved and mistreated. And what comes after the but is what we are going to see this weekend and next. 
In fact, Joseph himself, at the end of his life, he saw this coming. Genesis 50, verse 24, he says, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus means departure. It it means leaving, being brought out of. And this book in your Bible is all about God bringing his people up out of this land of slavery and leading them towards the promised land. But that is what the entire Bible is about. Exodus is about the event in history where God does this. But the entire Bible is about God bringing his people out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise. Seeing that the harsh labor hasn't slowed the growth and the prosperity of the Egyptians, Pharaoh issues an order that he is sure will put an end to this nation. He gives instructions to the Hebrew midwives that they are to kill every male baby born to a Hebrew woman. Now this is a a genocidal order. Genocidal means that if they were to follow through with this plan, it would not only lead to a decline in the Israelite population, but over time, a complete eradication of the Israelite population. A nation that cannot grow with only women. But the midwives, however, and I love that the midwives' names are given because they are forever enshrined in God's word, as those who feared God and wanted to honor him. And so they refused to bow to this order. In fact, they say Hebrew women are vigorous in childbirth. By the time we get there, they've already had the babies, and so we haven't had opportunity. But undeterred, verse 22 says that Pharaoh expands the order. Pharaoh gave the order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl will live. Now, I've often read these two orders that Pharaoh have given, and and in the past I've I've wondered what is the difference between the first and the second, and it was kind of revealed to me this week in my reading that when you look at the language of the second, it is far worse than the first. Because that first order was given to these two midwives who were ordered to kill all the babies, but the second order is given to all of Pharaoh's people. All of his people, all of the Egyptians. And when he says you must, what he's doing is he's establishing a law that every Egyptian who becomes aware of a Hebrew boy who is born is required to go into that home, take that baby, and throw it into the river. Do you get a picture of what is going on in Egypt at this time. Egyptian people going into homes and and ripping children out of the arms of their mothers and taking them out and throwing them into the river. We, We get lost sometimes in the language. We don't get the imagery of what is going on here. It's it's an awful time in history. And it's into this environment that Moses is born. And it says he's hidden by his mother hidden because at any moment an Egyptian was required by law to walk into their home to take the baby out of her arms and to throw him into the Nile. 
hidden for three months until she could conceal him no longer. And it's for this reason that Moses' parents, like those midwives, are forever enshrined in God's word, listed in that great hall of faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. They recognized something in him, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. But three-month-old children are difficult to hide, right? They, they are loud. They are bouncy. They want things. They're toddling around, crawling, maybe, by, I don't know if three-year-olds crawl. I forgot what, anyway, they're, 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 they're hard to hide. And so at three months, she makes a decision. Moses' mother makes a decision. She fashions this watertight basket, right? It, it wasn't designed to sink. So don't think for a moment that, that Moses' mother is simply chucking him into the Nile River. No, she, she fashions a watertight basket and she places him in the basket and she floats him down the river, but then she sends his sister, who we will come to know as Miriam, to follow along with the basket to see what was going to happen. And I have no doubt, we don't see it in our Bibles, but I have no doubt that if Miriam noticed that Moses was in any kind of danger, she was to draw him out of that water and they would come up with another plan. But for whatever reason, she floats him down the river. By God's providence, someone does find Moses and pulls him from the river. It's none other than the princess the daughter of Pharaoh, we see God's plan working and she knows that this is a Hebrew boy and unlike her harsh and cruel father who wanted all of the Hebrew boys killed, she has pity on him. She not only rescues him, but she sees his sister, not knowing that it's a sister there and sends her off to find someone to come and nurse the baby. Who is Moses' sister gonna grab? Moses' own mother. There's a great irony here. And, and, and I love when I see God's sense of humor because we know God has a sense of humor. He gave that to us. And, and sometimes I read parts of my Bible and I just kind of chuckle to myself because there, there's a great irony to this situation. The king's own daughter has pulled Moses out of the river and sent for someone to come and nurse the child. And, and who is brought is the child's own mother, and then she pays that mother to nurse her own child. So Moses is nursed by his own mother and out of the king's treasury is paid to do so. This boy who would grow up and eventually lead to the freedom of all the Israelites is paid by the very king who wanted him dead. It's amazing what God does through this. And we see his hand all over it. Now, as Moses grows, he's being nursed by his own mother. I'm sure that she shared with him who he was, where he had come from. She says, you're being raised by the Egyptians, but you need to know the promise. You need to know what it is that God has been doing from the beginning. He's, he's likely told about Abraham and, and Isaac and the story of Joseph and where God has brought them to this point. And I'm sure of this because of what happens when Moses grows up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he's 40 years old by this point, he 
goes out to where his own people were and he watches them at their hard labor. Sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that and seeing no one, he kills the Egyptian and he hides him in the sand. When a question came up this week, I don't know if you have been following along through the UVerse app, through the Bible app on your phone. I think there's maybe 70 or 80 of us right now who are following along with this plan through that app. And maybe you're just following along through that red brochure out there that has the reading plan for the year. If you've not been doing that or you are new, let me invite you to grab one of those and to just start where we are. You don't have to go back and make up, just, just begin right where we are, reading every day in God's word. But as we read through it on the app, I've been reading along with the questions and the comments that are coming up, and I love to read them, and, and I love to look at the questions, especially. And if you've got a question, I invite you to use that app to put it in there, because we're, we're looking at that. But in the reading this week, the question came up connecting what we just read with the New Testament book of Hebrews in Moses' own hall of faith moment. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, 24, we read, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And the question was essentially this, how does this New Testament verse line up with the account that we are just reading today? The very account that the author of Hebrews would have been reading because this was his Bible. We're reading the same thing that the, the Jewish people in the, in the New Testament were reading because it seems as if Moses didn't give these things up, that he didn't face harsh labor that his people faced, that he didn't leave the king's household willingly, but rather ran away in fear because of the crime that he committed. And the question is, these things don't seem to line up. And I, and I think the challenge is that we don't know for sure what happened between three-month-old Moses being drawn out of the water and 40-year-old Moses who kills this Egyptian. He obviously knew of his Hebrew background, he certainly could have embraced his royal upbringing and lived the rest of his life in wealth and comfort, giving no thought to his own people who were suffering under slavery. But what we see here is that Moses' heart was not with the Egyptians. It's not with the royal status. His heart is with his own people. Because in that moment, when he saw the Egyptian beating his Hebrew brother, he had a choice to make. And that choice was to turn a blind eye and to go back into the palace and live the rest of his life in comfort. And he chose to come to the aid of his Hebrew brother. Now, did he sin? Yes. He killed a man. But his heart was with his own people. He may not have left Egypt willingly, but he threw off his position of royalty the moment he took that Egyptian life, and his own mistreatment would come in the form of 40 years of exile. 40 years of exile away from his people, a stranger and a foreigner in a land not his own, away from not only royalty, but from the Hebrew people whose blood he shared. And this is where we find Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
And it's where I want us to lean in for the rest of our time to not only see what God is going to do with Moses through this circumstance, but to see what this means for us today. Because every time we open up our Bibles and read, regardless of whether we're reading instructions that are for us or whether we're reading the story of what God has done, we should always be looking for what God wants from us out of the things that we are reading. And so let's begin reading together, beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, a priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And we're going to see Horeb come up again. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, it is amazing to me that God does this. That he calls people by name. And you think about your own name and, and the reason that your name was given to you. Now, in the Old Testament, there were often very good reasons for why someone was named the way that they were. The, the name that was chosen would often relate to uh, perhaps a Hebrew or a Greek word that, that kind of described the circumstances in which that child was born. Moses' own children were named because he was so depressed about being in exile where he was. So, so there was purpose in the name, but, but our names today are kind of arbitrary, right? I think my mom picked my name because she saw Brandon on a soap opera in 1984, 1985, and she decided that that would be my name, right? It's, it's very arbitrary. And yet, our names are so personal to us that, that you could be in a crowded room and hear your name called, and what are you gonna do? You're gonna turn and look. There could be 15 other Brandons in that room, and you're gonna turn and look because you hear your name called. God chooses to call his people by name. He called Moses by name and he calls you and me by name and it indicates something to us. That when God calls you by name, his intent is for you and you alone to hear, to listen, and to respond in obedience. Then the first year of Amanda and I being married, we were living in this tiny little house in Sellersburg. And so the living room was the kitchen, which was the dining room. And I was sitting in a chair. I don't know what I was doing. But all of a sudden, I heard from the kitchen, which is like 10 feet away, Brandon, would you like a milkshake? And I, I looked at her. She was making milkshakes in the kitchen. And, and I said, is that the first time you asked me that? And she said, yeah. And I said, then why did you ask me in that tone? Like, the honeymoon is clearly over. Like, why, why would you say it that way? It's because Amanda and I have been together since high school. And one of the things that she has learned about me is that I do not hear very well. It's not that I'm hard of hearing. It's not that I'm deaf. It's just that there is this constant, like, internal dialogue in my mind and you have to say my name and talk at me pretty directly sometimes to get my attention. And she didn't want to have to repeat herself. And so she knew that if she asked it that way, that, that she would get a response immediately. 
You know, God knows that we have this tendency towards selective listening. Selective hearing is what we call it when Parker's like, daddy, 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 and she's like, your son is talking to you, right? This, this tendency towards selective hearing, especially when God is calling us to do something that we may not necessarily want to do. He called Moses by name from that bush so that there was no doubt that what he was about to say next was intended for him and him alone. It's just like when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave by name, because if he had not said Lazarus, every dead person within earshot would have come out of their grave, right? He calls Lazarus by name, he calls Moses by name, and he calls you by name. There are things that God is calling you to do that he is calling nobody else to do in that moment. Now, God may call all of us to do certain things. He calls all of us to believe in Jesus Christ and to accept the invitation to salvation. But there are moments when that call is just for you. Like, like when you hear in your heart your name being called and God is saying, you believe in my son. That is a call that is just for you and nobody else. Or maybe God is telling you to do something specific with that, that little nudge that we get by a spirit sometimes. Sometimes it's much bigger than a nudge. Sometimes that call is to go around the world, to cross over into Africa or Eurasia like Ron and Anne Marie and to, to do mission work. Sometimes that call is to go into ministry. And we have so many students in our church who are, who are interested in that and who are listening to that call. But sometimes it's simpler than that. Sometimes the call is simply by name for you to pay for the dinner of the people across the restaurant from you. Some, sometimes the call is to simply write a card or to offer an encouraging word to somebody. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But when God calls us by name, he does it because he wants us to know that it's for us and that we need to respond in obedience. The instruction that he gives to Moses is in verse 7. The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he gives the call, so now go. Go, Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. See, God called Moses by name, and he calls you and me by name because he knows that we not only have a tendency towards selective listening, but we also have a tendency to do the very thing that Moses does in the next verse. When he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? God that you would call me to do this. See, Moses remembers his past. He remembers that 40 years ago, he killed a man. And he buried his body in the sand. And he's had 40 years in exile to dwell on what he had done all those decades ago, missing his family and his people, believing himself to be a foreigner in exile, thinking that God has abandoned him to this place that is outside of where his people is, and surely thinking that this is the place that he is going to spend the rest of his life 
and die. And he just doesn't see how God is going to be able to use him to accomplish this amazing feat that God has given him, this seemingly impossible task. And so he and God go back and forth. You can read it for yourself this week. They go back and forth over and over again, and he eventually blames what some believe to be a speech impediment. He tells God, I've never been eloquent. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm slow in speech. Knowing all this, how can I possibly be the one to do this when so much rides on my ability, listen to that, so much rides on my ability to communicate clearly. And so, so obviously, God, this is doomed for failure. You must send somebody else. God, you are wrong. That's what Moses was telling God. God, you're wrong. I'm not the right person. And this is what you and I do. Our first response is often to question the why and then to offer reasons for why God has chosen the wrong person. It sounds ridiculous that we would ever characterize God as being wrong in anything. And yet when we ask why and we offer reasons why God has chosen the wrong person, that's exactly what we're doing. And in fact, there is always a reason to say no. I can come up with any number of things that I believe would disqualify me from anything that God calls me to do. It could be my past. I've simply done too much. I've lived too hard a life. I've made too many mistakes. And so I'm doomed to living the rest of my life in exile away from the work that is happening within God's kingdom. So God can't possibly expect me to do this thing. Or perhaps I, I, I do struggle with communicating. Perhaps I'm afraid to get in front of people or to go talk to someone. And so I can't expect God to, to call me to go and talk to somebody else about Jesus when I'm introverted or I think I lack intelligence. Or maybe the reason is that you just think someone else will be better suited. You know, as a, as a pastor, I'll get calls from people and say, you know, this person could really use some encouragement. Would you mind reaching out to them? And, and of course, I'm always happy to reach out to people, but I, but I ask, why haven't you done that? Because obviously God has laid that on your heart to go and encourage this person. It's not that there's someone else that's better suited. You go and you do it. See, there's always a reason to say no. When the reality is that God showed Moses and he shows us that we have every reason to say yes, regardless of what it is that God is calling us to do. When God first told Moses that he was going to send him and Moses first pushed back, the next words from God in verse 12 should have ended the conversation. God says, I will be with you. He gives Moses the assurance of his own presence and assurance that he has been giving us from the beginning. It's like taking your dad with you to the school to help you deal with the second grade playground bully. Now, I'm not advocating parent-on-child violence, but if you're struggling with somebody on the playground and you take your dad with you and he's standing beside you, then all of a sudden there isn't one second grader on that playground who looks as big and scary as they did the day before. That's what God is saying. If I'm beside you, then who is Pharaoh that you should be afraid of him? 
This is the assurance that he has given us. I will go with you. I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will dwell inside of you. Over and over again, we see this assurance from God. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who is it that can stand against this God that is standing beside you? And the question is rhetorical because the answer is so obvious, it doesn't warrant a response. If the omnipotent maker of the universe is for you, is standing beside you, has gone before you, dwells inside of you, then who can be against you? The answer is nobody can be against you. How can you possibly fail? It should have ended the conversation for Moses. It should end the conversation for us. But it doesn't. Moses continues to question, blaming his inability to speak eloquently. And I love God's response in Exodus 4.11. Who gave man his mouth, Moses? Who gave you the way that you speak today? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm the one who has done this. And the second reason to say yes is that God is more aware of my weaknesses and my limitations than even I am. Because he made me that way. He fashioned you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, sometimes in mysterious ways that are far beyond our understanding. Why is it that one person loves being in crowds while the other is content to just sit quietly in silence? Why is it that one person can get in front of thousands and speak like they're talking to a friend and yet another shudders at the idea of just speaking to a few? You think you aren't qualified because of your personality type or your stutter or your lack of eloquence or because you haven't had enough schooling and yet the one who is calling you is the one who made you that way. One of the most beautiful parts about humanity is the unique way in which God created every single one of us. And when you see it work together for the good of those who God loves, it's beautiful. He knows your thoughts and your fears and your weaknesses and your imperfections, and yet he still chose to use you, to call you. Why? Why would God do that? Well, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven gives such a clear answer. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that. Two weeks ago in the student foundations class, I, I was teaching and I, I told the students, anytime you get to a spot in your Bible where you see the two words so that together, I want you to circle it and pay very close attention to what comes next. Because God is giving us the reason so that no one may boast before him. 
If God sent a man with a speech impediment into the court of the king of Egypt to demand the release of his people and it worked, then who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? God gets the credit. Not Moses, so that Moses can't boast, but so that God gets the credit. Paul would later say that he was willing to brag all the more about his weaknesses because they are what allowed God's power to be displayed all the more. If God calls you to do something that you don't think you're good at, awesome. Because it means that you won't be able to brag about it on the other end. God will get the glory and God will get the credit. You do it anyway so that he might be known all the more in what he's called you to do. Final reason to say yes is that God will always equip you to do exactly what he's called you to do, even if you don't have what you need at that moment. He tells Moses, now go, I, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. You may not know what it is that you're going to say now or what words are going to come out of your mouth or how you're going to say it, but I'm going to give all of that to you. God's promise is that they would come when they were needed and not a moment sooner. And we so often want the tools right then. Maybe you've heard the saying, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He didn't choose you and call you by name because you had everything that you needed in that moment to do that thing that he had given you to do. Rather, he chose you and called you by name knowing that he was going to hand you every single tool that you needed to be successful when the time came to use it. And yet we so often want the tool. We want the words, we want the motivation, we want the feelings before we'll say yes to go, and yet God says no. You trust me, you have faith in me, and I will give all of those things to you. And if you read the next nine chapters of Exodus, you'll see what God does. That every time Moses and God allows Aaron to go with him, every time they go before the king, God gives Moses the words to speak. And God uses every no as an opportunity to display his power over and over again, eventually leading to the rescue of his people and their exodus out of Egypt. I don't mean to spoil the story for you, but that's what happens at the end. <laughs> that God uses all of it to bring his people out. This is what God promised would happen back in Genesis chapter 15 after the but. He said, you're going to be strangers in a land not your own, and you are going to be mistreated there. But, God says, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, you will come out with great possessions, and it happens exactly like God said it was going to happen. I'm not spoiling the story. God spoiled the story back in Genesis chapter 15. And so this week, as you continue reading in your word, and you see how God takes Moses' reluctant yes and uses it to accomplish this purpose, this promise, I hope that you will listen for what God is calling you to do and you won't be as reluctant as Moses was. Because if God can do this with a reluctant yes, imagine what he can do with a resounding yes. 
If God does this with my questions and my doubts, then what will he do when I trust him with what it is he has for me? Sometimes the call and the command, they're not as big as what God told Moses to do. It may be as simple as walking across the room, inviting someone to come and see what Jesus has done. And the beautiful thing is that the result is the same. Another slave led out of the land of slavery and into the land of freedom. That is what God has called us to and has invited us to do today, to do exactly what he was doing in Exodus, to bring people out of the slavery to sin and into the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed on the cross. Perhaps you're still a slave to that. Perhaps you're still in Egypt and you've not yet heard God calling you by name. He is calling you by name to believe in his son, to leave that land of slavery and enter into the promised land. If you need to respond that way, the invitation is to come and talk to one of us about what that might look like. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this story. Lord, I, I'm, I continue to be blown away by it, encouraged by it, knowing that you have the ability to take a man who was so reluctant to say yes, to use him and all of his weaknesses and all of his inabilities and all of his fears and doubts and use him to rescue millions. Lord, if you can do that with Moses, what is it that you can do with us today? If we will simply hear and listen and respond in obedience to your call, Lord, there's no limit to the growth that can happen inside of your kingdom. There's no limit to the number of people that can be brought from the land of slavery into the land of freedom. And Lord, we pray for them every day, for those whose hearts need to be awakened to the truth of what you've done through Christ. And knowing that there are those in this room who've not yet responded, Lord, we we ask that you would call them by name in their heart and draw them to yourself. Lord, you don't need us for this. Your plan doesn't hinge on our obedience because we know that you're going to accomplish exactly what you've set out to accomplish. And so may we be all the more encouraged that you have chosen us in spite of all of that and you've allowed us to join you. We love you for that, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.